Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Why, hello. Caitlin, what's up? You know, just membership chilling. Chilling as usual. And of course, myself, Alex. This month, we're sitting down with Caleb Williamson, our state public policy associate and one of our newest app association employees, and Matt Schwartz, privacy fellowship coordinator at the Innovators Network Foundation, for a conversation on all things privacy legislation. We're tackling the privacy debate at state legislatures, including just how fast this legislation can move, some of the ins and outs of Colorado's new privacy law, and what the privacy landscape looks like in 2022. But before we get into that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. In honor of National Disability Independence Day, which took place on July 26th, we're celebrating the contributions of innovator and engineer Ralph Teeter, the creator of the technology we now know as cruise control. After an accident at the age of five, Ralph lost his vision in one eye, and shortly after, the trauma from that accident caused his other eye to lose vision as well. This didn't stop him from pursuing a career in mechanical engineering and securing him a job as an engineer with an automotive manufacturer after college. Ralph was inspired to innovate after one of his regular chauffeurs would often drive erratically, accelerating and decelerating when driving. In response, Teeter developed a device that could push back on the gas pedal when the driver pushed it once a max speed has been reached. Um, This innovation won him many awards, including the highest professional recognition an engineer can achieve, being elected as a member of the National Academy of Engineering. Cruise control is now seen as the first step towards autonomous vehicles, a technology that will give those with visual impairments, like Teeter, more independence. And the rest is tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in D.C. Brad and Caitlin, what are the top tech headlines? It has been a busy few weeks here at the App Association. Last week, our very own friend of the pod and senior director for public policy, Graham Default, testified before the House Small Business Committee in a hearing titled Strengthening the Cybersecurity Posture of America's Small Business Community. During this hearing, Graham engaged with ranking member Luca Meyer, as well as other members, and stressed the need for a strong cyber workforce by reminding the committee that the United States is facing a deficit of cybersecurity talent. In order to right that wrong, Graham emphasized the need to invest in education and awareness at the K-12 and adult workforce level to develop the skills needed to fill these jobs today and in the future. Graham also stressed that small businesses in the app economy who don't have the resources to pay a third party for protections rely on cybersecurity protections offered by software platforms and smart device operating systems, and that attempts to sidestep these protections under the guise of promoting competition hurts consumer trust in small business products like the ones our members create. Graham is also set to testify before the House Energy and Commerce Committee right around the time this episode is set to release. He will be discussing data privacy and consumer protections during the hearing titled Transforming the FTC, Legislation to Modernize Consumer Protection. Head to the show notes for coverage of both of these hearings. And speaking of workforce, the Commerce Department's Economic Development Administration recently announced a $3 billion initiative aimed to address cybersecurity workforce and equity challenges the United States is currently facing. 
quote, there's a skills gap, and that's why we put so much money of this $3 billion just for skills development, apprenticeships, and high-quality job training, Commerce Secretary Raimundo said. And by the way, we need to make sure that women and people of color and people in rural areas have those digital skills so they can get those good jobs. For more on this program, as well as who can apply, head to the show notes. As President Biden takes infrastructure talks beyond the Beltway, the App Association has joined forces with like-minded associations and organizations to sign on to a letter supporting Congress's bipartisan infrastructure framework. We, along with nine other groups, support historic broadband investments to connect every American to reliable high-speed internet. This will help close the digital divide and address equity issues that millions of Americans are facing. This legislation also makes investments to protect our physical and digital infrastructure from increasing cyber attacks. We will keep you posted on our advocacy and education on all things infrastructure as discussions continue. And that's all for What's Brewing. And now I'm going to throw it to Caitlin for a conversation with Caleb and Matt. And as we mentioned earlier, today we're joined by Caleb Williamson, our state public policy associate and one of our newest App Association employees, and Matt Schwartz, Privacy Fellowship Coordinator at the Innovators Network Foundation. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for the invite. Awesome. It's great to have some brand new friend of the pods. I think that this is y'all's first time joining us on the pod. Um, So we, we are very happy to open the circle the friend of the pod circle to to you guys um okay so with that we're just gonna dive right on in um we are here for a privacy legislation update but it's not the typical congressional update that we're used to giving and that you're used to hearing over the last few years you might have heard us use the phrase this is the year of privacy in the hopes that congress would pass federal privacy legislation and we had good reason to believe that that would happen There were countless data privacy bills proposed in both the House and Senate, but unfortunately, a deal was not able to be struck, and we are still without federal privacy legislation. Now, as a result, states have acted by drafting their own privacy bills, and we recognize that it's not unlikely that some of these proposals could go into law. So with that and our members in mind, we are activated at the state level. If states move, we want to make sure that the legislation that's being proposed is consistent from state to state and at least accomplishes most, if not all, of what we're hoping that a federal privacy law would accomplish if and when that's finally passed. We definitely still want a federal privacy law with preemption and have not stopped our advocacy there. What this kind of came down to is that states are moving no matter what, so we figure if you can't beat them, join them. Um, So with that, Caleb, I kind of want to start with you and give our listeners a bit of a state legislature breakdown. Um, As a former state legislature employee myself, I can attest that they do not move and act the same way that Congress does. So can we talk about that? What is the the general makeup of state legislatures here in the U.S.? Absolutely. So I'm going to first start off by saying that all state governments are in part modeled after the federal government, and they all consist of the three branches of government we've all learned in school, the executive, the legislative, and judicial. Obviously, today we're here to talk about the legislative branch. So except for one state, and that sole state being Nebraska, 
all states have a bicameral legislature. So that means that there are two houses, two chambers, a smaller upper chamber that we call the Senate and a larger lower house that is often referred to as the assembly, the house of delegates or the house of representatives. And so what, what's pretty interesting about all of this is that we have to remember that state laws that are made at the legislature at the legis by the legislature. I'm going to say that again. So what we have, <laughs> so what we have to remember, is that the laws that are made at the state level apply specifically to that state, and because of that, each process is going to be a little bit different. So, for instance, if there is a privacy bill that comes out of New York State, and you live in New Jersey, and you do not really have any any ties to New York, you don't market to New York, you don't advertise to New York, that New York law does not apply to you. However, if you do live in New York, it definitely will be applying to you. And and that that's the that's generally how it works for all fifty states, with the exception of Nebraska, who only has one house. And so one thing that another thing that's pretty interesting to to just point out when we're talking about state legislature the state legislature in the state legislative process is that we have to remember that in the absence of any federal laws state law applies in that state but if there is any conflict if there is a federal law that is enacted and there's a state law that directly conflicts with it the state law fails federal law will always prevail over state law and so in and that brings me to more about how the general makeup of the state legislature works or what that looks like and so i cannot stress this enough it is different from state to state 46 states hold annual sessions four states meet in odd number of years and only 10 states are operating full-time which is year-round which means that a majority of the state legislatures are either on a hybrid or a completely part-time basis. And what, what does that mean, right? That basically would mean that your legislators are either going to be full-time employees in, in 10 states, or they're going to have other jobs as, as well. And in some states, they talk about, uh, there, there's some articles, and I, I don't want to spoil any fun procrastinating activities anyone wants to do during their lunch break but i would say that you can always find online you can just type in interesting alternative jobs that state legislators have and you will come across some pretty pretty fun things one example is you know by day somebody is a state representative at night they are delivering pizzas for their small business and that's something that is pretty unique and pretty interesting and that definitely differs from the the lawmakers that you see at the federal level. Absolutely. You see those full-time lawmakers, they have a lot more time to get laws passed than someone who say is trying to run a business and also be a lawmaker at the state level. So I think that that kind of gets to our next point, which is that state legislatures are, are different in the way that they do things. Things are, move a lot differently at the state level than they do here in DC. How does how does the, the fact that like some of these people are working part-time 
um, and the the resources that the legislatures have. How does all of that play into this, the speed at which legislation moves? And, and talk a little bit about how fast legislation can actually move at the state level. Absolutely. So when I was working with the New York State Senate, during our orientation, one of the staffers basically said that working at the state level is kind of like drinking water through a fire hose. <laughs> and, and you kind of have to just jump right in. Because when, when, when you're only meeting for a few months at a time, or even 60 calendar days, these members have to move expeditiously. And the staffers are working round the clock to, to get everything done within three, three months, six months, 12 months if you're full if your session is one full calendar year but as we've said before that's not normally the case and so this process requires these lawmakers who are either full-time part-time or are doing a hybrid to really spend a lot of their time out of session working with their community working with their working with advocates working with lobbyists to really get all of the all of the wrinkles out of their pieces of legislation just to make sure that all of their laws are ready to go the minute session starts these bills can be introduced they can go directly to the committees they can be debated there can be hearings and they can be moved within a week if not sooner and and that's something that you definitely don't really see on the federal level and if you do see it it's normally you know due to it's like tied to the budget or something <laughs> yeah it's 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 due to the budget it's a very unique circumstance but that unique circumstance is the daily for the state legislators absolutely so it, it keeps you really busy keeps you on your toes there's 50 states and some states uh which matt's going to get into have have a couple different bills so you can have one state that has several different privacy bills that you're trying to track um and keep up with so matt i kind of want to talk to you about some of that legislation um but but first how many states have or did have privacy bills on the docket in 2021 yeah, so as of this week, 26 states had introduced comprehensive privacy legislation in just this session. Wow. Um, and many of those states introduced several different competing versions of kind of that same uh, concept of comprehensive privacy. So there was a lot on the table already in this session. And, you know, when it comes to success rate, um, so far only... Uh, two of those states have actually gotten to the finish line with their legislation. And so uh, the session that was Colorado and Virginia, um, and then the kind of the vast majority of those 26 uh, have already had their legislative sessions close up for the year. Um, and so as a result, there's kind of just a handful of those 26 that still have uh, active bills for this session. And those are Ohio, which just introduced a comprehensive privacy uh, bill just uh, last week. Oh, my Il gosh. Illinois, Rhode Island, New Jersey, uh, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. So, Are still, those all active right now, those yeah, legislatures? Those, those are the active legislatures. The, the other kind of uh, remaining 26, or, or if you want to subtract those... Uh, five or six that I just said have closed up for the year. So we wouldn't expect anything out of them. 
does that mean that we won't expect anything from them ever or just for 2021? Yeah, that basically just means that for the rest of 2021, uh, the legislature is closed. Um, like we talked about before, a lot of these state legislators are part-time and as a result, um, they're kind of unable to meet year-round. And so when it's done, it's done. It's not like Congress uh, where they're kind of year-round with the exception of, of August recess and something that gets introduced at the beginning might die but might come back later on. So we're certain that those um, those other kind of 21, 22 states that have already closed up will not reintroduce for this year. But of course, that doesn't mean that they um, can't reintroduce for 2022. And in fact, we're already hearing reports from a lot of those states that they do plan on reintroducing a lot of the ones that, that failed and are done for the year uh, did make substantial progress, which means that the people who sponsored them and introduced them in the first place are, are kind of motivated to try and push it over the finish line for the next year. Yeah, absolutely. So so you mentioned some of the states that have privacy legislation. I'd like to do a little bit of a comparison between Colorado's CPA and California's CCPA. Um, I think it's safe to say that there were some things in CCPA that made it really hard for small businesses, you know, like our members to comply. Um, what makes Colorado's CPA different? Yeah, I think it's, it's safe to say that CPA, Colorado's uh, new privacy law that this is kind of like the most recent one that's passed uh, after Virgin uh, Virginia earlier in the session. Um, it's safe to say that that Colorado's bill is a little bit more streamlined than the CCPA and of course now the CPRA in California as well, which is kind of the follow-up uh, legislation that passed there and, and doesn't go into effect until 2023. But I think you know a lot of the fact or a lot of the reason that Colorado, is a little bit uh, easier to comply with is it's kind of far less prescriptive in terms of how businesses are actually directed in the statute to to complete some of the objectives under the law um, as well as the fact that kind of in, in California the Attorney General has much more extensive rulemaking authority under uh, CCPA which has kind of resulted in, in kind of a lot of language outside of the uh, the legislation itself that businesses have to take note of and comply with. So, you know, like one of our, our privacy fellows, Eric Goldman, likes to say, in California, we have a 10,000 word law with now 10,000 words of, of, of regulations and growing. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and, and like I said, of course, there's an entirely new version of the law that comes into effect in 2023 with CPRA. So that's a lot for a business to get their head around. And that's kind of one of the reasons why many folks weren't happy with the way that California went about th uh, went about things. So I would say, though, that kind of at, at the same time, um, and this is with the caveat that, that I'm not a lawyer, of course, and, and so this shouldn't be construed as legal advice. Um, <laughs> you could shoot all those questions over to Caleb. Uh, <laughs> but please uh, let me off the hook. But yeah, I would say that the, the, the best news of all is that if you're already compliant with CCPA, you're likely compliant with, with large chunks of the new Colorado law as well. Um, so, you know, like for example, if we go into the consumer rights section of the law, 
there's a lot of crossover there. So like uh, CCPA, Colorado's law, includes kind of the basic consumer rights to access their data, correct their data, delete data, uh, as well as the right to opt out of the sale of personally identifiable information. So very similar to what we saw under the CCPA, maybe a little bit less prescriptive in terms of dictating how businesses accomplish those goals. But I, I think it's probably useful to also add that there are a few key differences that, that you as a business should be mindful of. You know, it's it's not a like-for-like like bill, so you're not 100% compliant um, if you're just uh, compliant with CCPA. So, you know, and this is uh, this this framework that I'm about to say is it, very similar to Virginia's new law, uh, the VCDPA. Um, so in, in Colorado, uh, the new law allows consumers to opt out of the processing of personal uh, data for the the purposes of target advertising and profiling. So that that goes a little bit further than California, where consumers can kind of only opt out of sales to third parties, and and this kind of section is getting a little bit more into first party uses if you are uh, doing target advertising or, or profiling so that's definitely something that that folks should take note of and then maybe another feature that differs from ccpa to be mindful of with colorado is you know consent um, under the law cannot be achieved through dark patterns so we've heard a lot about dark patterns lately it's kind of a trendy term kind of defined to mean uh, user interfaces that are designed or manipulated um, with the kind of purpose of, of uh, making consumer do something that they don't want to um, so kind of opting out when they when they meant to opt in or, or, or something of that nature so uh, it's it was very interesting that Colorado included language around dark patterns um, Mm -hmm. That kind of meshes with what we've seen at the Federal Trade Commission, who's also kind of uh, started to log uh, increasing interest in the topic. And, and so I just think that is one uh, special area uh, where developers should kind of remain aware that um, there's perhaps more more guidance on the way at the federal level that could also impact the, what's going on in Colorado. So just wanted to throw that out there as well. Absolutely. I think that's all really important information, um, especially that our members will find pretty interesting when when gearing up for complying with the uh, CPA. Um, so before we wrap up this convo, I kind of want to end on a privacy legislation forecast. Um, so what can we expect from states or the Fed uh, in 2022 when it comes to privacy legislation, what what is our privacy legislation forecast? Um, Caleb, we can we can start with you. Yeah. So, you know how when you started this, you said that you know you were thinking that this might be the year, or this, you know, we we had the uh, the shared thought that this would be the year of privacy, and when you talked about it, you were talking about it more so on the federal level. But I firmly am pretty confident that 2022 will be the year of privacy, definitely on the state level, if not the federal. And part of that reason is because there is a body um, that is used to study laws that they believe should be uniform. And that 
that body is called the Uniform Law Commission. And this past month, the Uniform Law Commission created a template of a privacy act that, you know, they recommend that states adopt. And why I believe that is going to help make this the year of privacy for the state level is because for the states that didn't want to touch the monster of creating privacy legislation, they now have a, a functioning template that has been drafted. And I, and I want to point out that the ULC, the Uniform Law Commission, you know, their, their draft that they put forth is not law. It's merely a recommendation. But that recommendation does a lot of the legwork that, you know, that states that had no idea where to begin with privacy may look towards and say, okay, maybe we want to adopt that. Or maybe they want to model their future legislation after Virginia, which was recently passed in, in Colorado, which was also recently signed. And so I, I firmly believe that 2022 will definitely be the year of privacy on the state level. It'll be interesting to see which particular states. I would say definitely Connecticut is up there. There was uh, uh, an article I was reading today that indicated that Florida had a lot of interest as well. And there is Oklahoma. There, there, there are a few states off the top of my head that I can think of, but I do think that we will see more states trying to engage with privacy legislation definitely in 2022. Yeah, just to hop in on that, I do think that 2022 is probably going to look a lot like 2021 did, where we will see again perhaps a majority of states uh, introducing bills, especially now, as Caleb said, that the ULC proposal is out there mm -hmm. and it kind of makes the overhead of drafting uh, your own state privacy template a little bit easier. And so as a result, yeah, I do think that we'll see a lot of efforts. And like Caleb said, there were a handful of states that got close. Florida was definitely one. One that we haven't talked about is Washington. Washington state has tried its hardest over the last yeah. three sessions now to pass something and they've gotten close um, but they haven't quite been able to get it over the finish line we already know that the the chief sponsor of the legislation there is interested in reintroducing and so we're definitely going to see a washington bill and that one's likely to get close if not pass um, next year and so, I, you know, if I were to handicap it, I would, I would still probably say that less than five states will pass their own uh, law next year. It, it might look at, uh, similar to this year where just, you know, a couple do. But that's still big news, and that still puts a, a lot of additional pressure on the federal level uh, to try and get something done because each new state that passes a rule um, makes compliance that much more difficult for the businesses that are covered. Um, in terms of the federal level, um, 2022, <laughs> looking optimistically, <laughs> I, I, I think that... Wrong answers only. Just <laughs> yeah, it, it's tough to be in this game of constantly <laughs> wondering if this is going to be the year, but I do think that Ener House Energy and Commerce is ramping up up towards kind of reintroducing um, a bill for this session. They haven't yet, right? So um, 
that would be a big piece of the equation. We might see something by the end of this year or early next, um, and that will kind of reignite the conversation at the federal level again once that's reintroduced. I, I would say, though, there's a lot of priorities that are taking precedence right now. We still have the pandemic. We have infrastructure. We have a lot of, th you know, we have social media, Section 230. There's a lot of things that are higher up on the queue, arguably. And so it might take something seismic on the level of a Cambridge Analytica or something mm -hmm. of that nature to bring it to the, to the fore again and, and help it jump the queue. Um, but I will never say never. Um, and I do think that state action makes it more marginally more likely at the federal level. So that's my long-winded answer for you. Absolutely. Well, that was extremely insightful, both of you. Thank you so much. And of course, I would be remiss to not once again stress the need for federal privacy legislation with preemption. Obviously, it's a relief to see legislation that's a little more thoughtful, like Colorado's CPA go through. But no matter how good the legislation is, it's always a burden for our small business members to comply with 50 plus state laws. So with that, Caleb and Matt, it was so great to chat with you. Thank you both for joining in this episode of Tech Swamp. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh having me have joined my first ever podcast i hope it, it went well and uh it's been an honor thank you i i don't think we'll lose any listeners from this episode so thank you both <laughs>
Well, I don't really necessarily have anything specific to say other than in just I'm really excited the Olympics are happening. Yes. Um, I've spent a lot of time watching the Olympics. Um, definitely not time that I should be working, though. Um, <laughs> work is for work. Olympics is for Olympics. And I know that I know the time and place for both of those things. Um, <laughs> but I will say I spent like all day Sunday, um, with the exception of a few hours doing the Olympic uh, watching. And it was really exciting to see the U.S. take the gold in fencing, um, women's fencing. It was our first gold ever. So that was exciting to watch. Yes. And that person was from uh, Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, which is close to where I grew up. Um, and then that was that was a little lit moment for Appalachia. Um, but then also, um, unfortunately, I have developed a problem, which is that uh, when the swimming is on, I have I realize that I can search all my old times in the USA swimming database. Um, so I was comparing my old times to the Olympic athletes. Oh wow. Um, How did which, that go? Well, for the mental health, not great. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, you probably felt great about it. Um, fully aware that I was 14 and not an Olympic athlete, um, I last night like compared my 200 freestyle time, and oh, wow. I was 30 seconds off the the male's um, gold medal time. Um, so that that was kind of hard to see that 30 <laughs> seconds doesn't sound like a lot, but it is in terms of 200 meters. Um, yeah. So, yep. Still having a great time watching the Olympics, though. That has not deterred me from tuning in, and hopefully my competition issue will not get worse. Maybe just take a break from watching swimming. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I, I have been watching a lot of the Olympics. I also watched it all day on Sunday. Um, I watched it a lot of the day on Saturday. Um, celebrated my birthday by watching the opening ceremonies. Um, so I, I, I have also spent quite a bit of time watching. I stayed up way too late the past few nights watching, uh, some of the early morning in Tokyo, late night here, um, live events, um, including, um, the women's skateboarding final, well, and the men's, but specifically the women's skateboarding final. Um, and the reason that I want to talk about it is a lot of things. Um, there was a time in my life, not because of skill level, but because of just like, it's what, that's how I dressed and what I did for fun and um, what I like to talk about. I once thought that I could be a professional skateboarder. Again, I was not good at skateboarding. Um, so was never going to be a professional skateboarder, but I really loved it. Um, so I was really excited to, to learn that it was going to be in the fine in the Olympics, um, so then I am watching the final, um, and I guess what I want to say is that the three people who won gold, silver, and uh, bronze, their combined age was forty two. The, <gasps> the 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 gold and the silver medalists were both thirteen, um, just a few months apart, um, and then the bronze medalist was 16 years old um but it's kind of awesome because when i was a kid there were not a lot of female skateboarders um and now there were a ton who all like competed at the olympics and did an incredible job and you know through incredible tricks and it is super exciting to see a bunch of young women like taking up the mantle and really like are going to be the future of skateboarding. Like, I think that's so cool. Um, So it was very exciting and a little bit emotional. Um, And 
it has just been a thrill to see. Well, I'm kind of pissed that I missed that because I saw some of the men's stuff. Yeah. When, yeah, and I did not see the women's, and I'm I'm so upset because watching skateboarding at the Olympics has been something that is new. Yeah. But is very very addicting to watch. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And- I will also say that, so this was street, um, the, towards the end of the week, it's, um, it's park and park is kind of cool. Cause it's a little mm-hmm. bit more about like height based tricks. So like a little mm-hmm. bit more flipping, a little bit more like stuff that you may think of when you think of skateboarding. So, um, it should also be exciting. I'm very excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And their outfits are so cool too. Right? Like, oh, the, they're just the, awesome. This, the, they, I, I was not sure when I first saw like the U.S., ones like the the uniforms um but then like when you see the athletes put their own spin on Mm -hmm. the uniform it's like you're like okay yeah yeah yeah, it's dope i like it i'm into it so and i like the french french oh the rooster uniforms are i'm obsessed with the rooster (laughs) so cool they just look they just look really really cool and i'm i'm jealous i will never look as cool as these olympic skateboarders (laughs) i feel that way also (laughs) I haven't gotten the chance to watch a lot of skateboarding yet, but uh, I mean, I definitely think it's true that pretty much any time that there's a new sport in the Olympics, it's exciting. It's yeah. just like something crazy and new. Um, so I ought to give it a give it a watch. Yeah, next time it's on, so. I'm gonna blow up the group chat. Yeah, do oh, it. Skateboarding's on. Do it. <laughs> For what it's worth, being able to watch. Uh, Surfing also during the Olympics Ooh. has been a very exciting thing for me. And again, like the competition has been really good. This is like maybe bad because like the weather sort of took a turn for a little bit dangerous, but it makes the waves really great. So like oh, the yeah. last couple days of surfing, <laughs> the waves have been sick. And so like it's been, it's, there's been some adrenaline. Really good surfing. Yeah. Like yeah, watching totally. that, I feel like would give yeah. me adrenaline. <laughs> Palm sweating. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about it right now. I'm not even watching it. <laughs> um, all right, folks, that's a perfect place to end. So that is it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search TechSwamp. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. (laughs) That's all for today, folks. Everyone, say bye. Bye. bye.